0: the History for Atheists podcast. I'm Tim O'Neill, and I'm the author of the History for Atheists blog, where I analyze some of the things many of my fellow atheists get wrong about history in general, and the history of religion in particular. If you're an atheist, or just someone interested in common misconceptions and myths about history, this podcast is for you. Back to history for atheists. My guest today is Sebastian Major, the writer and presenter of the excellent Our Fake History podcast. If you aren't familiar with it, Our Fake History analyses a wide range of historical topics, clarifies common misconceptions, and debunks a lot of bad history. I've been enjoying Sebastian's show for several years now, and I recommend it very highly. So when he announced on Twitter that he was going to tackle the very thorny topic of the Galileo affair, I was really interested. And given my study of that subject, I had some comments and a few criticisms to make about his analysis. Overall, I thought he did a fantastic job, but Galileo is one of those topics that is very hard to get right. To his great credit, Sebastian not only took my comments on board, but even acknowledged my feedback in the third of his three-part Galileo episode. And he was also gracious enough to accept my invitation to come on History for Atheists to discuss the difficulties of presenting complex historical topics accurately, as well as his thoughts on debunking historical myths and the persistence of bad history in popular culture. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sebastian as much as I did. Sebastian Major, thank you for coming on the show and welcome to History for Atheists. And as I was just saying as we were chatting, it's great to put a face to the voice. I've been quite a, a, an avid listener and quite a fan uh, of of your podcast which is our fake history uh i discovered it i think a couple of years ago and and found that uh, i listened to a couple of episodes with with trepidation and realized that no you actually do know what you're talking about so um <laughs> absolute pleasure to have you have you on the show welcome
1: thanks for the warm welcome tim i know you are a discerning critic uh so i appreciate those kind words no
0: problem. Well, for those who, who aren't familiar with, with your podcast, uh, and, and I do recommend it very highly, and I recommend it very often, um, maybe you could uh, you could just give us a quick introduction about your background, how you got into this whole podcasting thing, and and what the show is all about.
1: Sure. So, uh, our fake history is a podcast about historical myths. So. Uh, those are stories that got wrapped up in the historical record that a lot of people believe to be true, get repeated all of the time, but may or may not be accurate. Uh, so I kind of go at it from two different angles. Sometimes I look at a story that everyone thinks is true. Um and is often repeated as real history. And I'll sort of do some de- historical detective work uh, to try and uh, give a more accurate understanding of that story, or I'll go at it from the other direction where I'll get into a legend that everyone believes is uh, you know, pure fiction or, you know, something like, you know, the, the Trojan war or uh, King Arthur or um a story like that that a lot of people just sort of assume is more legendary than it is historical and explore the various theories on whether or not uh, there's uh, some um, a kernel of historical truth to those tales. So that's what the podcast is all about. Uh, I got into it uh, in 2015. I started the show. Uh, I am a high school teacher uh, by trade. Uh, but I have just transitioned into being a full-time podcaster. Uh, but when I started the show, uh, I was um, I was a high school teacher in uh, in Toronto, uh, Canada, and uh, I taught history, I taught English, I taught um, all sorts of other social science courses at the high school level, and uh, I I loved telling stories in my history classes um i'm kind of a storyteller at heart and uh one day i was you know going off about uh the wild story of rasputin's assassination and I was like in the midst of, you know, giving the whole tale, but they tried to poison him. And then he, he gets back up and they shoot him. And then he like, you know, comes back to life and like, they just can't kill this guy. And I, I was really, you know, laying it on thick with the Rasputin tail. And one of my students actually called me out uh, in that moment. Like, Hey, isn't this all just a a myth? Isn't this all just a legend? Like, why are you telling us this? Like this really happened. And (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I was like, well, I was just trying to make a good hook. I was trying to bring you into the class, but you know what? You're right. It is kind of a wild story. It, it does sort of defy logic in a lot of ways. And so that night I went home and uh, I did a bunch of research into Rasputin. And, you know, what I found was that, you know, that tale, um, comes from a really specific source. It comes from this one particular um, Russian aristocrat uh, who is untrustworthy for a number of reasons. Um, And so I kind of was like, I I should turn this into an actual history class. And so I I came back the next time we had that class, and I had kind of created a lesson that was all about uh, examining the different sources that we have about uh, the death of Rasputin and then like trying to determine what we think actually happened. Uh, and it was, I think one of my better moments as a history teacher. (laughs) And, uh, and so I was like, and I'd been, I'd been mulling over starting a podcast for a long time. I loved history podcasts. There was a handful of history podcasts I really loved. And I was like, I, I was thinking about throwing my hat into the ring And after that day, I came home and told my wife, I'm like, I think this is it. I think this is the angle, right? This is the way to talk about history that maybe is a little bit more fresh. At the time, I didn't know of anyone else uh, that was doing it exactly the way that I wanted to do it. And so I'm like, I'm going to try it. And um, over the past seven years, the show has gained a listenership. uh, And now I've been able to make it um, my main gig. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's my tale. That's the story of our fake history.
0: It's a, it's a good it's a good origin story. And, and you yeah, know, it's interesting. You just mentioned that that Rasputin story because for years I thought that was the truth. Yeah, but sure. It's, it's a great story. It's brilliant. You know, he kept they kept getting back up, and then they threw him in the river. And and when they found him, his body eventually they realized he drowned, and and he'd been shot and poisoned and flogged with chains and all this stuff. So I used to tell people that story um, for years until one day I read somewhere that, you know, it wasn't true. Um, Now, the funny thing is I kind of like stuff getting debunked, which is probably why I do what I do and possibly why you do what you do, because you've said it and I've said it many times. I've heard you say um, in your most recent episodes and I think before, the real story is much more interesting. And I always find that the real story is always more complex, it's more nuanced, it's more shades of grey, and it's more real. Whereas I find many other people, we can possibly get onto this a bit later in the conversation, but many other people much prefer the myth and get quite angry when you come along <laughs> and, and shatter the myth. But mm. it, it, I had a very similar experience to you um, on the Rasputin story. Uh, yeah, I think it was in my first year of university when I thought I knew, like everyone, I thought I knew the Galileo story. You know? Right. Quite clear that Galileo was a martyr of science and champion of reason and and the church was evil and, and superstitious and ignorant and mm-hmm. oppressed him and he was right and they were wrong. And I remember the first time it, while, while studying uh, history talking to someone about something else and he, he said, yeah, well, of course the whole Galileo story is, is that everyone knows is wrong and actually the church had the science on its side and I remember thinking, well, that's not true. And the fact that this guy was a Catholic and I was an atheist made me immediately think that he must be wrong sure you know in in with great confidence i went off to the library to um, be able to come back to him next next class and tell him he was wrong and found that he was right um, which which leads us to why you and i started talking in the first place sebastian because um, for those who who do follow uh, sebastian's podcast you would know um, he has recently just finished an epic three part <laughs> series on the Galileo affair, getting to the bottom of what actually happened and debunking uh, some key myths. And, I, and, and Sebastian, I'm going to do some nitpicking, but that's I will. all right.
1: That's all right. That's why we're here, right?
0: <laughs> it is, but I, it was partly why. But but I, <laughs> I did want to to say um, congratulations on that, on that those, those episodes. They were three very long. I think it was three hours or like
1: yeah, that ended up being uh, one of my longer series. The final. Normally, I like the shows to come in under an hour, and and for part three, it ended up being like an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but you know, part of that was spurned on by your comments <laughs> on my earlier episodes, uh, and so I'm like, I need to be, you know, I, I need to, I needed to make a correction. Um, and then i really wanted to be on top of stuff and it
0: still wasn't perfect uh but let's talk about it let's get into it yeah let let's talk about it but i did want to stress um that, that it is a great show and, and a, a great episode or you know a great three-part episode because it's an incredibly difficult subject and when you i think you might have announced, that you were going to do it. And I thought, gee, good luck, mate. Um, good luck, man. <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge topic. And I've been studying it for, <clears throat> excuse me, literally 35 years. Right. And every time I read something new, I get a different angle or a slightly different perspective or a new kind of uh, understanding of it because you can look at it from so many different perspectives. You can look at it from a purely scientific perspective. You can look at it from the perspective of the myth that arose around Galileo. You can look at it from a theological perspective. You can look at it from a social perspective, regarding what was going on in Europe at the time—the mm-hmm. Counter-Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, political perspective, personal politics—and um, it, 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 it's just every time you, you you change your angle on it, you get a different view. Yeah. But um, I, I suppose you know the 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 thing about it is it, it's something that everyone knows. Mm-hmm. And I often say, with Galileo, um, tell me about when you who taught you the story of Galileo?" And the answer is most people have never been taught the story. You just kind of pick it up. I, yeah. I, was never, I don't remember a point where a history teacher stood up or a social science teacher stood up and taught me the Galileo story. You just kind of pick it up, and so what yeah. isn't um, the real story, it's the myth. yeah, and yeah. and that was what you were trying to debunk, you know which I think on the whole, you, you definitely did, you know. Particularly oh, yeah. the, particularly the idea that the church was stupid, unscientific, and and ignorant, and Galileo was a hero, and wise and pure. Uh, and I, I love the way you kept you kept coming back to that nickname that he got yeah. at university, the wrangler. No matter what the topic was at university, he would always get the conversation around to what he wanted. Um, and and I, I, think you, I think you use that as a really nice theme. Yeah, for,
1: that that ended up revealing itself as a real hook for me. Like, well, once I heard that, I even said it on the show, right? Once I discovered that, I'm like, oh, I know this guy. <laughs> I've met this guy.
0: We've right? been to university with that guy, you know? He, yeah. He, the one who was always right even when he was wrong. Because yeah. he was really smart. Yeah. And and, right. and, and funny. Yeah. Um, which Galileo, he was all of the above. Oh. You know, Galileo's hilarious. He yeah, I know. That
1: Everybody was another nice thing to learn. Yeah. That was another nice, nice thing to learn because, like, I love it when you learn that a historical figure had a sense of humor because <laughs> oftentimes we see them as these sort of, like, you know, uh, two-dimensional figures, and, like, when you find out they were funny, especially yeah. when you get further and further back in history when they seem so distant from us, and you're like, oh, this person was witty. Um, that's great. But but Galileo not only being funny, like, he was, like, mean funny. Like, yeah. he was
0: biting. Oh. Yeah, yeah, and this is, this is what I just said, you know, he would have made a great Twitter troll. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, he was brilliant. I mean, some of his letters are hilarious, particularly his letters about people he didn't like. Yeah. Um, and, and the the group of, of scholars at Padua University who were his main sort of opponents and who he kept beating in arguments um, were led by a guy called Colombe, which, of course, in Italian and Latin means both dove and also pigeon. And so he called them the Pigeon League. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he was writing in his letters, you know, the Pigeon League is pecking at me again. He's, he, he was very funny.
1: Yeah. And that was something that I was unfortunately unable to really get into in the show. There was so much to cover. Yeah. And I know that in our exchanges, you know, you brought up that, you know, you really wished I could have, uh, you know, uh, paid more attention to the kind of role that the Pigeon League was playing in the whole affair. And, um you know, I I think I I never even used the term pigeon league. I only kind of gave a very passing mention to it when I talked about like uh, the, some of the satire in uh, uh, the dialogue on the two worlds that like one of the characters was based on Cologne, but I didn't even name him because I didn't want to add another name into uh, the podcast. But yeah. you know, this is maybe this is this is sort of part of the the difficulty of like telling a really nuanced story while also having to kind of remain within the constraints of the form. Um, and, uh, yeah, but
0: there you go. And, and I think, you as I said, I think you did a brilliant job. And I could tell listening to it that I, you, I could almost hear you sort of going, okay, that bit I can't tell because I'm going to go yeah. off down the rabbit hole there. Yeah. And you said you know, a hell of a lot of detail re- remained on the cutting room floor, I yeah. think, in, in your conclusion. And and you could sort of tell that. Um, I suppose the reason I, in my notes back to you the other day, the reason I kind of picked up on the Pigeon League thing is um, unless uh, I think a lot of people have a, have this fixed idea of it being a church versus science, you mm. know, like creationism versus evolution, uh, sort of a scenario, which it wasn't. And I think the reason the Pigeon League is important in the story is that they weren't, that they included churchmen, but they were largely academics. Right. And I've worked at university I know what academics are like. They are most <laughs> petty, most petty, and 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 vindictive, and mean people when it comes to their their their, their, their little vendettas. And I've I've come across the pigeon league. I've, 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 sure. I've met those guys too. Um, so the thing was that that the church really didn't care about Galileo. They didn't even care the fact that he that he had come out in in 1613 in his letter on sunspots and said. I'm pretty much a Copernican. I mean, he virtually hated yeah. it. Um, they yeah. they passed that for, he was submitted that to the Inquisition for approval, for publication, and they said, yeah, no problem. So, And this is something yeah. a lot of people don't get. They kind of get, they kind of think that he was under the radar until suddenly the church pounced on him, but he wasn't. Um, what happened was the Pigeon League saw his dabbling in theology, which he really didn't start doing until probably really until 1614, Right. and thought, here's our chance to finally get this guy who keeps beating us. Um, and they were the ones who brought it to the attention of the Inquisition. The Inquisition weren't paying any attention to this stuff. And then the Inquisition even looked at his letter to Castelli, which was his foray into theology, which you talked about, mm-hmm. and came back and said, we don't have a problem with this. Even even when they brought the, the theological dabbling up, he said the, the Inquisition came back and said, um he uses some immoderate language, but we don't see anything that is out of kilter with the teachings of the Catholic Church. Right. Yeah. At so that stage, the kind of the, the theological implications of heliocentrism, the cat, that cat was out of the bag. And, and and another bit that you weren't able to bring in was that there, because it was just it's just too complicated, was um Paolo Foscarini wrote his book, which was arguing very similar along similar lines to Galileo on the theological implications and that's what really brought it to a head and all mm. this all this kind of came together in 1615 and resulted in the 1616 ruling that said it's false in philosophy i.e scientifically wrong therefore we we it's it, it's it's you know dangerously close to it's formally heretical so close to being heretical yeah uh, yeah kind of I feel- that last point is something that a lot of people don't get either. Yeah. never declared heresy. Well, point. that's
1: right. That's right. And that was actually something that, you know, even I f- found myself having to learn about as I was sort of uh, researching this particular topic was the idea of like these ideas, uh, by the time they come around to make the- making their ruling on Copernicus, um, They never, they never get officially declare it like an out and out heresy, but they use all of this language around heresy, which for someone that's not like, you know, deep in the world (laughs) of 17th century church politics is, um, is very confusing. And, and this is where I think, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest myth, right. And the most obviously sort of wrong one is that Galileo himself was condemned as a heretic. Oh, Which he okay. was not, right? But the final ruling said that he was vehemently suspected of yeah. heresy. Now, if you're not like really up on the nuances of of um, how the Inquisition made these rulings, it would be hard to see the difference, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and I explain that to people, and people just go, "Well, you're splitting hairs." I'm like, "I'm not." Well- Given that you could be burned at the stake for being an unrepentant heretic, yes. Whereas, whereas you really would have to work pretty hard to get any kind of court capital or corporal punishment for for simply being vehemently suspect of heresy. The, the issue, as I understand it, and I'm definitely not an expert in 17th century theology, but the issue, I believe, is that only the Pope and uh, the ecumen- an ecumenical council could declare something that hadn't been examined before to be heresy. Right. So what the Inquisition could do was was apply those rulings or on other things, they had these lower grades. So vehemently suspect of heresy is one of those lower grades and formally heretical. A lot of people read that and think, well, that means they are officially declaring heretical. It's They're formalizing it. It's not true. <laughs> formally means heretical in shape. So it basically means right. close to heresy. Heresy adjacent yeah. is... Possibly a modern way of putting
1: it. Yeah, um, yeah. And and they, well, they called Copernicus false and erroneous, right? Um, yeah. And again, these are all English translations, too, which is <laughs> it already obfuscates something, too, right? Um, and, you know, but again, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it's funny. People give you, you know, a, a hard time for splitting hairs. But the people that really split hairs were <laughs> the 17th century <laughs> Inquisition because it was extremely important to them. Exactly how all of those things were formulated. Exactly how all of those things were worded, and and Galileo's trial um, really came down. Well, didn't didn't come down to it. I shouldn't say that. There was a lot of discussion around, like, what does it mean to hold a belief versus just discussing a belief, you know? And uh, and so that was, you know, all of these little nuances were incredibly important to it in the end.
0: Yeah, and and the 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 fine passing of that that last point was right. you could see it when you're reading the transcripts of the of the of these interrogations. He's sort of saying, "Well, no, 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 I've I've, I've never actually held, uh, right. but I kind of was inclined towards it." But then, then the sixteen sixteen ruling was made, and of course, I completely rejected it none of which I think is actually true. No, no. (laughs) I think think if you read his letters on Sunspots and his personal correspondence, he definitely believed that it was was true. But the interesting thing is a lot of people don't seem to realise that he, everyone agreed that it hadn't been proven and everyone agreed that he hadn't proven it. He wanted to. He was working towards that. He wanted the, the, the intellectual and theological breathing room to do that. That was what he was working towards. Mm-hmm. But, but we've got a... Um, and People have said to me, oh, well, of course he said that. Well, we've got private notes that he wrote. His commentary, I believe it was on Foscarini's book. Uh, might have been on on Bill Amin's response to Foscarini. But he basically said, um, well, we haven't proven it yet. And even if it was, I think it was 85% proven, that still wouldn't be good enough. So he was actually raising the bar very, very high, uh, but he wanted to, he wanted because he wanted to breach that bar, because he, yeah. he was a bit of a celebrity. He right. wanted to be the guy yeah. who who cracked yeah. it, and that was why he was frustrated by the 1616 ruling that said that he wasn't allowed to discuss it. Uh, and he tried to kind of get his way around that. But I think the other interesting thing that people that I think you you, you nailed was the idea that the church. Um, uh, just couldn't contemplate the idea of heliocentrism, which is something that a lot of people think about this mm-hmm. is simply not true yeah um, because the idea had been kicking around for quite a while um, since yeah but and but you know you you
1: made a good point And one of my sort of first times I stumbled, and one of the things that first could have got us in communication was that i i and again i've I've since sort of learned better. But um, part of the myth of Copernicus is that he had essentially proved heliocentrism with his work and this, and this gets like tossed around a lot. And it was a myth that I had kind of absorbed. Um, and, and so, you know, even someone that like, you know, spends their time <laughs> trying to debunk historical myths, get clarity on that stuff. I had thoroughly absorbed that one that like, nope, Copernicus with his as a brilliant mathematician figured it out. Right. And it was there and it was like kept quiet. I, I, you know, I, I kind of, I realized that it was not so when I did the research, the first time around did that first episode, I was like, okay, well, they didn't, they didn't ban his book, which was already a bit of a surprise to me when I learned that. Um, And, and I, I was sort of, uh, I, I I was not skeptical enough about uh, one of the narratives about why they did not ban his book, uh, which was that um, uh, the, his, uh, his printer, his sort of uh, friend who got him to uh, uh, put it out there, uh Ossiander, um, he had written this preface um, and that, and there's some people that have gone, I didn't say this on the show, but there's some people that have said, this preface is the greatest crime against science ever committed in the 16th century. Um, but for your listeners that don't know, the preface to copernicus's book written by this other guy not signed by anyone so it kind of had the implication that maybe copernicus wrote it which he did not uh was like hey everything in this book is just sort of hypothetical and you know shouldn't be taken for truth and like this is really just for mathematicians and not for general reading so no one need get too upset about it um if i can paraphrase osiander um <laughs> and uh and so you know there's a narrative out there that that's what uh kept copernicus from being um banned or for that book from being banned uh, on the rotation of the celestial spheres uh but you know you and that's where you kind of were like hey hey no 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 that's (laughs) a that's a narrative and uh you you know you directed me towards some really good stuff that really showed that I, and I've I've come to believe because I think the evidence points to the the truth of this that he was more worried about objections from other mathematicians.
0: Oh, he was, uh, and and what he called the peripatetics. So the peripatetics being the, yeah, the Aristotelians who were Aristotelians and who, who were just conservatives. So this is why Morris uh, Finichario who's one of the the great modern current um, scholars of Gal- of the Galileo fair, he he gets very frustrated by. The whole, um, uh, the whole science versus religion angle because he says that completely misunderstands what was going on with Galileo. I'll we'll get back to Copernicus in a second. But that misunderstands what was happening with Galileo because it wasn't science versus religion. There were scientists on both sides of the camp, both camps. There were um, religious figures, very senior ones on both sides. It was It was conservatives versus radicals. And so, on one hand, you had the people who just wanted to stick to how things had always been and didn't like the fact that they were discovering the phases of Venus and rings around, or moons around Jupiter, and what turned out to be rings around Saturn. Uh, and then, then you had people who were, who were very excited by that. And and it was a classic conservatives versus like the new wave. Mm-hmm. And once you start to look at it in that perspective, a lot of it makes a hell of a lot of sense. So I, I always say that if you if you look at it as this Science versus religion thing—you're actually distorting the picture, and so you're never going to get what was really going on. You know, why is Galileo going to, to Rome Rome, meeting with cardinals in in 1624 to talk about how the new pope, Urban the the Eighth, can can uh, maybe help them to to get the, get their, the, this new book published? Right. You know, shouldn't the cardinals have been on, on the other side? Shouldn't they've been re- reporting into the Inquisition? Because that only makes sense once you understand that it wasn't a science versus religion clash. But with Copernicus, I mean the one that I like to to roll out in front of people is the fact that the Pope uh, of the time, Clement the I think it was, um heard about Copernicus's theory, and this was long before the publication of of De Revolutionibus about ten years before, and found it really interesting. And so he he invited Johann Vimeda or Vimda who was uh, lecturing on astronomy in Rome, to the Vatican Gardens to give a lecture to himself, several cardinals and his whole household, and you mentioned this in your, uh, in, your in your podcast. So when people are trying to say to me, you know, that the church hated the whole idea, really? Because the Pope in, in, the, in the, mid, uh, the mid-16th century didn't seem to, he seemed to find the whole idea quite fascinating. Yeah. And we had cardinal, you know, we had cardinals, Encouraging Copernicus, you know, sponsoring he was sponsored by a bishop, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Right, and and then you know even the the sitting pope at the time of Galileo's trial was you know a a an acquaintance at least at least and a a one time admirer and someone that loved. His his discoveries as an astronomer, right, and
0: like wrote poetry, uh, attesting to that, and talking about how much he was. Look, I think I think we could probably say that Urban uh, or uh, that that Barbarini, as he was, and then Urban once became Pope, and Galileo were friends as much as someone as high and mighty and important as the Pope could be friends with a mere mathematicus. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mentioned that, that, that visit to Rome by Galileo in 1624. He, he had multiple, I think it was ten, uh, um, audiences with with the Pope. Now, that's incredible. You know, most people would, would be honoured to have one, and he had yeah. a significant <laughs> amount of time with him. And what was going on there was they had discovered a chink in the Pope's armour because um, the thing about Urban is that while he was a great uh, admirer of Galileo's and he was a, uh, a, he was very learned uh, when it came to natural philosophy and, and astronomy. He didn't believe that any of the models that were in uh, that were in, in uh, under under discussion at the time, you know, the Tychonian, the Copernican, the Keplerian, the Ptolemaic. He didn't believe that any of them could actually be demonstrated to be true. Sure. He that, and and so he actually because he thought that doing that put a limit on the omnipotence of God. So he he had to be convinced about uh, writing on this topic again, and the way they did that was they said the Protestants are laughing at us, so the yeah. Protestants said, we're all a pack of ignorant idiots. Yeah, and he thought he was outraged by that, and that was the angle that Galileo used, and that's why he got permission to write the book. But yeah, but the reason, but the, the the interesting thing there is, extreme conditions were put around. What he could do with that book, one of the argu- one of the things he had to do is he had to include that argument by the Pope. So he had to include the argument that ultimately we can never know because mm. this limits God's omnipotence, and and that is the final word, literally in the in the last day of the of the of the dialogue. The dialogue, uh, yeah, but it, but it's said by Simplicio. Right, um, <laughs>
1: uh, he just couldn't and- help himself.
0: He, he, he just he, we in Australia we call it shit stirring. You just yeah, <laughs> you know you shouldn't, but you do it anyway because it's funny. And yeah. and and the thing was, I mean, a lot of people. And you, you kind of talked about whether putting the Pope's arguments and the argument the Pope's preferred on omnipotence in the in the mouth of of a guy whose name could be interpreted as the simpleton, yeah. uh, and who definitely came off second best in the dialogue. Um, that that could have been what what angered the Pope and, and caused the whole affair. A lot of people say that. There's actually no direct evidence.
1: No, there really isn't. There really isn't. And I tried to be I tried to be careful about that because there yeah. was stuff that I read that wanted that was like leading you to be like the Jesuits were in the Pope's ear, and yeah. the Jesuits like convinced the Pope that Simplicio was him. Um, and I tried to be really careful to say, like, we, there's no proof of that, right? Like the Jesuits were certainly, um, pushing the inquisition towards, um, uh, investigating Galileo or whatever the, I'm, I'm sure I'm not using the right terminology there, but, uh, you know, starting their process with Galileo. Um, and, uh, but like the idea that there were sort of You know, the guys in his ear that that didn't that actually rang hollow to me because everything I'd learned about Urban the Eighth was that, like, he was a well read enough man himself that he could really draw his own conclusions about what Galileo's book was about. And like, he didn't need people telling him how to interpret something like that, that that didn't seem that didn't seem in keeping with his character. Now. and, and, And it's sometimes hard to get a sense of a character like. Uh, Urban the 8th because there's some stuff you'll read about him that'll tell you that he was just like the most venial and um, uh, oh, what would be the right word vain maybe is the right word uh, man that he was just like kind of the the worst example kind of of a um, stuck up renaissance prince and so uh, it, it all came down to just clashes of personality that he just could not stomach um, being, uh, being s- disrespected in this way. Uh, and uh, I I kind of shied away from that in my show just because like I I just felt like I hadn't read enough to really make a character judgment on yeah. on Urban the 8th. Uh, and because also he seems really different from the time that he's a cardinal and then the time that he's a pope.
0: Um, yeah well I think that last point is is well observed. Um, my comment on on urban would be would be that I think I think he, he was a much he was able to be much more himself as a cardinal, not surprisingly becoming a head of the entire Catholic Church and the height of the counter-reformation and the 30 Years War put a bit of strain on him. Um, I would argue that he was he was very proud yeah and and you can certainly see in some of the correspondence, and and the reaction to the dialogue when it came out, um, paranoid. Uh, yeah. He was under a lot of political pressure from the the Holy Roman Empire, or, or basically from the, the Spanish, who who felt that he was taking sides in the Thirty Years' War, which by that yeah. stage had resolved itself into a, a war between two Catholic powers, France and Spain, nice. and, and and the Spanish cardinals were pursuing a a policy. In Rome, where, where basically they were saying that he was a bit too Italian, you know, just a little <laughs> right. bit too laid back, a little bit too friendly with maybe people who are a bit suspect. Sure. And then in that context, Galileo brings out this book, which is an absolute bombshell, uh, which you know was meant to be this, this sort of even-handed dialogue, and obviously very clearly is not. It's very <laughs> clearly weighted in, in favor of Copernicanism. And uh and then Um, that's really what angered the Pope initially. Then when he read it, he found that an an argument which his master of the palace realm, uh, Nicola Riccardi, who had had been doing the negotiation with Galileo about what he could and couldn't write, had had explicitly told Galileo he couldn't use, and that was his argument from the tides. Yeah. There it was, front and centre on the final day of the dialogue. That's probably where when Urban hit the roof and then they go on and looked into what he what Galileo had been had been instructed back in 1616, and they found that case note saying you should not discuss this in writing or in any way. Yeah. And and that would have been what really made the Pope angry. And pretty much from that point on, Galileo's goose was entirely cooked yeah it was just a matter of how much they humiliated him before uh, and then how much they were going to they were going to punish him Um, yeah and
1: and that's and that's a point that you know again when we were kind of corresponding you know you made that point about the the uh the argument about the tides and that was something that i did not include in the podcast and i i probably should have and uh i i can tell you why i didn't (laughs) (laughs) it's it's because so I knew that like one of the one of the things that Galileo was working on, like in those intervening years between 1616 and 1633 was this what to me seemed like a pet project. And so this is my own bias coming out, uh, which, you know, um, because because I'm looking at it and I realize now on further reflection, I was looking back at it from a, a modern perspective, which told me that he was wrong about what caused the tides Yeah. Um, and for the listeners, Galileo had, and again, I'm going to paraphrase it. Cause I found the whole theory of the tides very confusing it um, because it was wrong. You're like kind of looking at someone's bad math, essentially <laughs> um, which is, is very confusing but his theory essentially was that the tides were not caused by the gravitational pull of the moon he believed that the tides were caused by the rotation of the earth and so and am i getting that right tim you are.
0: yeah you yeah. are yeah.
1: yeah and so um and so like you know he had this whole elaborate mathematical justification for how the rotation of the earth caused uh, the the tides that you experience in, in on the shore of any ocean. Um and so this was sort of yet more proof towards like the earth moves there's movement of the earth not only is the uh, earth going around the sun but is it's also sort of revolving uh, uh, you know on its own axis right. right. Um but he was wrong but it was like the whole theory of the tides thing was entirely wrong. It right. was one of Galileo's like you know just missteps. He, he didn't get it right. Um, and so because of that, I was like, well, what, this was just like a weird flight of fancy. I, why does he so obsessed with this? Um, and you know, again, this was something you pointed out to me, uh, is that no, this, this ended up being kind of a crucial part of what may have upset the Pope was it really, the Pope himself was not a fan of this theory of the tides.
0: Yeah, it, it really was and it was almost like a comedy of errors because uh, Riccardi the the master of the palace who the pope had kind of said okay you you go and talk to to Galileo about what he, you know, how we're going to get this allow this book to be published. He he was you read his correspondence he's obviously this wasn't his favorite piece of homework. Uh, he was also an incredibly busy guy. So what, he ended up outsourcing the reading of the manuscript of right. the dialogue to someone else, but for yeah. someone else, didn't realize it wasn't across all their correspondence, and so he didn't realize that Galileo wasn't meant to be making this argument. Right. Galileo probably would have known that, but he just sort of kept quiet, and then uh, and then the book came out because he honestly thought, because he's Galileo, he honestly thought he would carry all before him with the power of his argument, yes, and just didn't because he was also a bit of a nerd, didn't realize. <laughs> That he was walking into a political minefield and, and then until the mine started to go off. And even then, there are people writing to him in, in 1632 saying, you can get out of this. And he was like, No, I'm gonna go to Rome and I will I will argue in my case. And they were like, This is a really bad idea. Yeah. And you see the point in the transcript of the trial where the penny dropped. And he realised that they had him by the short and curlies, and it's it's quite quite <laughs> remarkable. But but going back to your th- to your point about the theory of the tides, yeah, it, it does seem bonkers to us because we know it's wrong. But yep. the funny yep. thing about that is that people then knew it was wrong too, and pointed right. out problems. You know, it, his theory requires there to be one tide a day, and there's two. Right. So, it wasn't like people at the time didn't realise the prop the, the the flaws in it. He also uh, argued with Kepler about what caused tides, and rejected Kepler's correct uh, idea that it was the moon. And yeah, he called really. it an occult action. He said there's no mechanism, which was true. Until Newton came along, there wasn't. Until they fully
1: but, understood gravity, yeah, right. Yeah.
0: But Kepler, I, I always say in this whole thing that Kepler is the unsung hero of this story, and it's it's absolutely ridiculous that we're always talking about Galileo. Yeah, and, in the and that's partially. And that's partially-
1: yeah, sorry, but I think Galileo himself kind of does Kepler dirty
0: in the whole thing, right? It does. yeah. I mean, because they corresponded, but Kepler didn't. Uh, Galileo didn't really give Kepler a hell of a lot of time, and and Kepler was the guy who actually got mm, got it all mostly right, largely for wrong reasons. And this is the other <laughs> funny thing: he believed yeah. in sacred geometry and a whole lot of weird mystical stuff, which yeah, yeah, led him to to stuff that was actually true. But the, I think the other interesting thing is the, uh, is the, the dynamic. I was just talking there about the the dynamic of the trial, and here's where where um, I, I I found that you had been led astray, mm. and uh, it was James Reston, who's a a, a journalist, yeah. who wrote a biography of Galileo, who Sebastian you in good faith read and thought this guy is he's a he's a best-selling, well well-regarded author he's yeah. written lots of books on history why wouldn't you take it uh, take it as uh, that his account as being correct but what he did was he flipped around the sequence of events mm. in the trial so he had you know them producing the case note from 1616 saying you were, you were instructed not to discuss this in any way and and he then has Galileo pull out a letter from cardinal bellarmine the then head of the inquisition saying you know he hasn't been condemned of, of of anything and he is he's right to to uh, to to keep doing his work but it was exactly the other way around and it was remarkable to me when I heard you present that sequence in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, wow, where's he got that from? And and then I went and did a bit of bit of homework and yeah. found that he's this this published author, yeah, James Reston, he, he has clearly, deliberately flipped it around to make it a more dramatic story. But what happens is it's the other way around. He brings out this letter from Bellamy and says, what's the problem? I've got this this, this letter yeah. from Bellamy saying I'm, I'm in the clear. And they say, do you remember what was said to you in 1616 when you were given this injunction? And he said, oh, I kind of think so. He must have realised that he was being backed into a trap I kind of recall that it meant that I could sort of discuss it and then they're reading the actual injunction that says, do not discuss it in any way, and then he starts backpedaling like the Tour de France, like he's, oh, um, well, that wasn't quite my memory, but maybe I was wrong, you know. But what Reston does, and I've got an article that I may have shared with you already on this guy called called the Cosmic Skeptic, uh, this, this kid at Oxford University, he's about 21, um, but he he did a whole video on what really happened at the Galileo trial, mm-hmm. and he, he makes it out that the case note that they skewered him with was a forgery. He says oh, they forged yeah. it, and Reston, I understand, goes down that path. As well. he
1: he leaves the door open for that. So I was careful not to indulge because I had, thankfully he was not my only source, but I did, but you, and you caught me, right? Like, so, uh, and, and fair enough. Right. And again, like, you know, those of us out there that present ourselves as MythBusters, I think have to be open to this kind of scrutiny because, um, because otherwise, you know, what the hell are we doing out here? You know, uh, <laughs> and and so yeah you know i was i i didn't rely entirely on reston but i did obviously and you found you found them all you were like oh i bet you took that detail from reston i bet you took that detail, and you were right you were right on every count and uh i was like oh man who am i dealing with here Uh, but but again you know like i said i want to be transparent about that because um it's just a reminder that you got to go to the primary sources and i should have and what made the reston book um useful was just that it presented the story in such a sort of brisk narrative that it was like, okay, what was happened there again? Okay. I can just go back and kind of refer to it. But I noticed that Reston uh, was like, maybe that injunction uh, from the church, the minutes from the original Bellerman meeting had been a forgery, but I had enough other books. So um, uh, the one was a, uh, uh, Galileo in Rome was the oh. Mar, Mariano Artigas, yeah. uh, and uh, his co author, whose name is escaping me. Uh, uh so, so that
0: right, and Artigas, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. and so they are like very, like, kind of cl- like there's really no evidence. And then I kind of double checked it off of uh, I, I, I had a, a whole uh, series of, of um, it was a collection of sort of smaller essays called Galileo and the Church that I was uh, uh, referencing, and basically, um uh every, most most sort of scholars are like there's really there's really no reason to doubt the um legitimacy of those minutes that were created in 1616 and um and and reston you know doesn't go like they were they were manufactured by his enemies but he does go like maybe he kind of yeah. just sort of he kind of does the like well maybe his enemies <laughs> did this um and Uh, And, and, you know, they, you know, he leaves the door open um, and I, I did my, and again, that was one that I did catch. uh, And so I will, uh, I will, but you're right, I did flip around the order of that, which does sort of tell a different story because it, it makes Galileo more sort of, it makes it a better courtroom scene. You know no. what I mean? Which again, you should I should always be skeptical of that. Like when the story is just a little too perfect, when it's just like, bring in the letters, boys, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you should really
0: yeah. be it, 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 it was, around that. It was a little bit too Hollywood, you know? I mean, he, yeah. and, and Galileo comes out the hero. And this is the other problem I have with Reston's account um, he, it is very readable, yeah. but it's also uh, a little bit um, dramatised. And so he quite often has uh, Inquisitors thundering and, and shouting yeah. and frustration and so on. You read the transcript and it's not even, you don't even, you get a summary or you get a paraphrase of what they said. So they could have just said it in a bored whisper. We don't know. So he's kind of adding this sort of embroidery. The other bit that, that you did mention, and again it comes from Reston, is that Galileo was threatened with torture and was in general, general, genuine danger of being tortured. And Reston makes a reference to uh, a, a terrible instrument called the, the heretic's fork,
1: yes, which yes.
0: is an instrument that was used to torture heretics. Now, the problem with all this is, first of all, Galileo was never in any danger of being tortured because the Inquisition had, as weird as it sounds to us, quite complicated rules regarding who could be tortured and sick people couldn't be tortured, old people couldn't be tortured and clerics, priests couldn't be taught or clergymen couldn't be tortured. And Galileo was all three. He was too old. He was over 65, over 60. He was sick. He'd recently been very ill and, uh, and he, he had taken a tonsure. So he had received a, a clerical benefice and was officially a member of the clergy, even though he wasn't actually an ordained clergyman. Uh, so he couldn't have been tortured. Now that the Inquisition could have overruled their own rules, but they generally didn't. And the other problem there with the, the resting claim about the heretics' fork is I can find no evidence of any such instrument ever being used in that period. It seems to be one of these, uh, these invented torture devices that were dreamed up by 18th and 19th century gentlemen, possibly ones with uh, with with sodomasochistic uh, sexual um, <laughs> fantasies uh, and you know, things like the pair of anguish, which is inserted in the rectum and opened up, mm-hmm. and yeah, these things you, you see them in books about terrible things the Inquisition did. If you actually look at the Inquisition's manuals and so on; they were quite open about torture. But it was generally was hanging someone by a rope until they they're, they're, um, until they, they tell you what. I mean, it's just nasty. But it was done recently by the CIA. Um, it's, it's, so it's quite an effective way of torturing people. But, yeah, the, things like the, the heretics fork and so on. So I, I think we we uh, the lesson is, as you just said, if it sounds too good to be true, if it sounds just a little bit too dramatic, yeah, um, probably not true. Which sort of leads us, I suppose, Sebastian, to something I did want to discuss with you, which is in your experience, because I've got some thoughts on this, what a what! What? How do you how do you think is the what do you think is the best way to convince people that these myths aren't true? Great question. Um,
1: I, I mean, part of the reason why myths catch on is because they're good stories and because they are so repeatable, and so uh, you have to give someone a new story uh and i really see my show as a storytelling podcast first uh even though i want it to be accurate even though you know of course as we said before i'm presenting myself as a a myth buster and i don't want to you know uh take that lightly but when i'm putting my shows together i am always thinking about um the narrative that I am trying to craft, which I think makes it more listenable. Um, And so you need to give people a new story. And part of it, I think, and, and this is what I try and do with my show is you can still have fun with the myth, right? Like I, I like these fake stories as curiosities as, as, um, as like odd little uh, artifacts, um, just as long as we don't put too much stock in them, just as so long as we don't, um, you know, find ourselves, you know, believing them. And as we've sort of dis- come, has come out in this discussion, like I, I know that there's been stories that have sort of so thoroughly um, made their way into my uh, kind of historical consciousness that even I don't catch myself sometimes. <laughs> um, and despite, despite now, like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm closing in on 200 episodes. Right. Um, and so what I think helps is like, sometimes when you're debunking uh, anything, it can sound like you're just checking someone's math homework.
0: Yeah.
1: And and people will not always remember the ins and outs of how you checked their math homework. And in sometimes people might even resent that you went through and like pointed out that they didn't carry the one. And, and, and so what I do on my show or what I try to do anyway, is go like, you're not, you're not stupid for having believed this story in the first place. You're not, um, you, you haven't done anything wrong because you believed the story in this first place. You believe, if, if you heard this story at all and believed it, you believed it because there's something about that narrative that resonated with you and has resonated with people for a long time. And so part of the fun is being like, what is that thing that resonates? Like, what is that, you know, in the Galileo story, it's, part of this bigger narrative we've constructed about this war between science and religion. And so, you know, making Galileo into this martyr of science fits within a a grander narrative and fits within certain narratives about the Roman Catholic Church and fits within narratives about enlightenment and about ideas of progress and and what have you. Um and so it it resonates on that level. But if you can go like no, no, there there is a real story here um and it's a real human story and to me you know I, I, as we sort of talked about before like i i had to find the thing in that story that was true despite despite the errors i still managed to make um and again i'm, I'm trying to do my best to fess up to them and be open about them I'm like yeah i i trusted a book i should have been uh, even more skeptical of um which can happen, which can happen, um, but uh, you know it's never too late to sort of make the correction and make it right. Um, but at the same time, you know, how will people sort of know the new story of or the the more accurate story of Galileo? Well, in my show, I was like, well, let's here's here's a detail I learned about him that he was the wrangler, <laughs> and that like if you go like, oh yeah, he was like that in university, but maybe that personality trait was something that carried throughout his life. And, and the more I learned about it and the more I kept on seeing it come back again and again, I was like, yeah, like the invention of, or the invention of the telescope, that whole story is like him kind of doing a little bit of wrangling. Right. <laughs> Um, and, and even the writing of the dialogue on the, on the two chief world systems is him, you know, again, being like, maybe I can just make this work. I think I can sneak this past. Like I can, I can make this happen. I'm going to bring them around to my way of seeing things that, that to me is just a, another, um, a indication of who he's always was. And I think if you can tell people that story, they're like, oh, Okay. Uh, now I, I can sort of understand maybe what, what went on here. Um, yeah, exactly. And then from there and from there, you just flesh it out with more and more nuance and you've studied it for so long that you've become a bit of an amateur expert. And that's <laughs> why you can catch uh, podcasters like me uh, when we, when we make a slip,
0: you know? Uh, no, the, the, the real expert on this is, uh, is Tony Christie. And if you, if you have a look at my video channel or, or my podcast, you'll see a massive three part conversation I had with Tony who, uh, who, who has exhaustive knowledge on the, on this stuff? But I, I love your point there about give them another story because that that is exactly the advice that uh, that I got from David Hutchings. So I had an interview with David Hutchings and James Ungurianu, who have written a book on together on the conflict thesis so the myth that science and religion have always been in conflict. Hmm. And and what uh, the, the interesting thing there is that David um, is a like you is a high school teacher um, and so is good at telling stories in ways that will engage bored you know 15 year olds uh, you can probably relate to that um whereas James is an academic who specializes in the history of science and religion so what he, what they were able to do is James kind of provided the 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 uh historical heft and then David put the the spin on it that uh, and where he where he kind of got to was well, here's a story of how two men, um, Draper and White, back in the 19th century, fooled the whole world. And and so people still think that this conflict thesis is true, even though historians rejected it 100 years ago, which I think was a really, really good angle, whereas mm. um, maths homework checkers like me would just go, well, no, that's wrong, and and we're <laughs> an, an idiot for getting that wrong. So I think the lesson I'm learning from you and from, from David, Sebastian, is... Uh, give them another story uh, I, I do try to do that i think but i think i don't do it enough so i'm I'm, uh, I'm trying to think now of okay how can i how can i tell these stories in in a different way so that people go away with the correct story in a way that they actually engage with because you sort of said you know people get very emotionally committed mm. i found someone asked me on reddit the other day um in all your debunking what are the ones that people react to most negatively and it would be probably uh, G- the Jesus myth idea. So, people who don't believe Jesus existed at all, they get very angry with me for being an atheist who, who does. Sure. Like I, think, I think he did exist. He was like a um, person, as, sure. He yeah. you was know, a person, yeah. yeah. Um, but, the, but the one that really gets people angry is when I say, well, actually, no, Christmas, um, Easter, and Halloween are not originally pagan festivals, mm. they, they, were, they were, they're, they're Christian. And, and there, there might be some elements of some of the practices that might be pre-Christian and maybe we could even call them pagan, but on the whole, they're, they're Christian. And people get really angry because they were taught usually as kids. And I find stuff when, when the, the people absorb when they were very small children, it's much harder to dislodge that than if they, they picked it up yesterday. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do admire the, the way in which you, you've been able to do that, Sebastian, because, I've every time I listen to one of your episodes, and I love the one on the Renaissance, I love the one on the Dark Ages, and I particularly loved the one on uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Oh, thanks. I think that was a really good and, and even handed and fair analysis of what uh, a book that I loved when I first read it yeah. and have, have had to kind of reevaluate. And I now direct whenever anyone asks me what's wrong with Guns, Germs, and Steel, I say, well, not everything, but some things. And yeah. Right. Listen to Sebastian's uh, podcast on the subject. Well, thank you. That's really
1: kind of you to say. And, uh, you know, I, I, um, you know, anytime I do get anything wrong on the show, it's just like, Oh, it like, Oh, it hits me like, no, no. Uh, and you know, you, you've been a, uh, you know, you're, you're a very, um, fight is uh, i would say thoughtful and incisive is what i was trying to say very thoughtful and incisive um a listener uh so you know all those compliments actually mean a lot coming from you because i know that you listen very carefully and have very high standards um yeah. and uh and so i i appreciate that and you know um yeah. And I think, I think part and this is why I wanted to come on and engage with you. So, you know, I can direct my, my listeners to this and be like, Hey, look, you know, I, the Galileo series, you know, I did my utmost to make it like the most accurate series. And then, you know, um, you know, listener, Tim listener and podcaster in his own right. Tim O'Neill, you know, has had a number of like really important points to bring up about some of the things I said. Uh, so I want, I'll direct them to, uh, to this. Um, But yeah, but you know what? I I just want to say one more thing about narrative is that narrative is extremely powerful. And so like you have to like wield it responsibly. Right. Because in as much as um, as much as I think the way that you bring people around to a more accurate understanding is by giving them a new narrative. It's so easy to just like use that power for evil or um or if not use that power for evil, the desire to sort of wrap up your tale in a satisfying way can sometimes, uh, lead you towards, um, inaccuracy or, uh, creating new myths. And so, uh, you know, you, you have to be, you have to be sort of guided by an, an honest desire to, um, I guess, to educate is maybe the right word. Um, and so, yeah, narrative is uh, is a powerful tool, and and ultimately, I think what I've been exploring on the show the past seven years is the power of narratives, and uh, and so you know while wielding them myself, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I've I've gotten a, an all new respect for that, um, and uh, and so yeah, I mean. Um, I think that's what I wanted to say about that. I didn't have I didn't have a nice little cherry on top of that, but, you
0: know. <laughs> yeah, but ironically,
1: look, that's what we're talking about.
0: But what I, what I would, would say is, you know, I'm, I really it when you you said you would come on my show because I have a lot of ex- of of experience of people who I've critiqued and they just completely re- flatly reject what I'm saying. They can't actually argue against it. But they just, you know, they, they attack me personally, or they say that I'm not, you know, a lot of them are atheists and they say, well, he's not a real atheist, he's actually a Christian apologist, which is kind of hilarious. Um or they 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 see, you know that or well, they they totally ignore me. Um and occasionally, very occasionally, they will respond to me, but they don't actually counter what I say. And they just they just kind of pretend they do. So uh, it's great to have someone. Uh, you, you probably don't have the ideological dog that they have in the fight. No. So, no. but it was nice for you to come back and say, "Hey, thanks for your for your comments," and and also for you to agree to come on and have this conversation, which I think has been a really fruitful chat. Oh um, yeah, because I think you you, you know you, I, I can learn a lot from you about that narrative. bit. my next. Major article on my on my blog is going to be about the Inquisition.
1: Yeah, really? that's going
0: to be really tough because it's hard to debunk uh, myth, the myths about the Inquisition, of which there are many, without it making it sound as though you're saying, "Well, the Inquisition was actually okay." Yeah. Um, what makes you all right with people being burnt at the stake and tortured for their beliefs, which I'm most definitely <laughs> not? So that's going to be tricky. You know, what, yeah. what, what narrative do I present there? So I'll, uh, I'll I'll have to give that some thought. But, Sebastian, do appreciate you coming on the show. We've talked for just over an hour. So um, I think I think we've covered a hell of a lot of ground in that time. Uh, I I've, I've really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for coming on History for Atheists, So maybe we'll see you again sometime in the future.
1: Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for all your great questions.
0: No problem. bye Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sebastian. He's a great example of someone who is open-minded and therefore open to critique and even prepared to change his mind, something not often seen these days. Hopefully, we'll have him back on History for Atheists sometime in the future. But in the meantime, please check out Our Fake History. I'll put a link in this program's description. This is probably the last program on History for Atheists for 2022, so I look forward to giving you more to enjoy in the coming year. Have a great Christmas and see you again here soon. This has been another History for Atheists podcast. If you've enjoyed this show, please subscribe today. You can also subscribe to the History for Atheists YouTube channel for video versions of this and other shows. Or to the original History for Atheists blog an even more extensive collection of detailed articles on how to avoid errors about religious history. Have a great day.